You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I want to preach to you a message I've entitled, God's Judgment. God's Judgment. How long does it take your temper to flare when someone wrongs you or insults you? Five minutes? Half an hour? Or a split second? I got head nods on that one. How long can you hold your peace and bear it until your temper subsides? An hour? A couple of days? A lifetime? What about God's righteous anger? What about God's wrath? You and I have offended and insulted God with our sin. We have lived in opposition to His will every day of our lives. We have defied Him to His face some 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, or 80 some years. So what about God's righteous anger. How does God feel? Or how will God judge you and me? Allow me to show you how today's Bible passage functions, how it works. So please play along with me out loud. Idolatry is a sin. Amen? Sexual immorality is a sin. Amen? Murder is a sin. Amen? Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. Romans 2.1 For when you judge one another, you condemn yourself. Since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Notice what Paul is doing here. He's pulling you into a trap. He's wanting you, as we went through Romans chapter four, I mean chapter one, and he's listed all of these sins. I'm sure there were people that were a part of the Roman congregation that sat there with their arms crossed and nodded their head and was like, yeah, preacher, yeah, get them. And then in chapter 2, he turns and he says, wait, in case you missed it, I'm talking about you. For those who know, I like to point out when Paul uses the second uh, person plural, y'all. He does that often, more often than not. But in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it is the second person singular, you. He's wanting to talk to every single individual who would amend that list in Romans chapter 1. Paul is pointing at you. And Paul does not mean here when he says judging someone else, he does not mean objectively evaluating. 
As Christians, Christ has commanded you and I to discern false teachings and false intentions or motives by the fruit observable things in a person's life. But what Paul is condemning here in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, is that you and I cannot stand as judge and condemn someone while we do the same things. We cannot make an eternal condemnation about someone's soul and life, especially as we're hypocrites. The same things refer to the sins in Romans chapter 1. And while all of us can amen to idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder, remember some of the things that were in that list. It includes greed, a desire for more. You mean to tell me you've never desired more and you're completely content and thankful with everything God has given you? It includes envy. That's the desire for someone else's possessions. Being combative or divisive. Lying. Wanting to get even, gossiping, bitterness toward God, pride, despising others, boasting, disobeying our parents or dishonoring our families, breaking our promise or word, or just being callous and unmerciful toward others. The list includes, so to speak, the not-so-big sins. And every single one of those sins condemns us before a holy and infinitely perfect God. So we can't sit in judgment and eternally condemn someone else because we're doing the same things. We don't like to condemn ourselves though. We don't like to point the finger at ourselves. We tend to be blind to our faults. And we find it easier to be harder on others. We're also very forgetful of our own past, but we seem to have an uncanny ability not to forget others' past. We also tend to find justifications for our sins, but we don't permit those same justifications for others. Instead of saying, I am angry, we say, someone upset me. No, you're angry. Say it. Others gossip. I share critical information. Someone else is plain stubborn. I stand on principle. Someone else is critical. I make helpful suggestions. Those are my favorite ones as a pastor, all right? Whenever we are angry about someone else's sin, we should be very careful. We need to speak out against sin. I'm not saying we just all become lawless and immoral. But what we do is when we speak out, we must speak with humility, acknowledging we ourselves are sinners. We are sinners. Often the sins, and I believe this is true, often the sins we notice in others are the sins we struggle with. The ones we're quick to point out, you know why we got so good at identifying them? We see them all the time in our own life. Those who know God's mercy, if you're a Christian, you've repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've received God's mercy and forgiveness, we should have thick skin and be able to overlook the faults in others and be very sensitive to our own. That's what the mercy and forgiveness of God does. So how does God judge us? 
write this down in your notes. Number one, and I want to make it personal today, so some of the wording sounds weird, but I want you to write it like you're writing it to yourself. God's judgment of me is impartial. God's judgment of me is impartial. You and I know truth. We know truth. But we only know truth in part. We perceive only a part of a person's life. And we still do this perception imperfectly. We often do it with some type of prejudice. We do it with some bias, good or bad, positive or negative. Will you look at verse 2 again, what, what, he, what he talks about God's judgment? We know that God's judgment, when he condemns someone, it's on those who do such things based on the truth. God knows the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. His judgment conforms perfectly to the reality of someone's life. You forget, and I do too, that God sees the secrets of our heart. God judges not only our actions and deeds, but our thoughts and our desires. The thought or the desire makes you as guilty as those who lack the fear or have the opportunity to carry out that thought and desire. But it's still there, and God sees it. You deceive yourself and think as long as it's not gross, as long as it's not public or publicly frowned upon, as long as it does not break the law of the land, I'll be all right. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Some other preacher said it. But morality will keep you out of jail, not out of hell. So being a good, moral, decent, even religious person doesn't mean anything to God. God takes into account all things. He takes into account whether you love Him. Remember how you love Him? With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of it. That's what He expects. And whether you're pure in heart, whether we've been cleansed by the Holy Spirit Himself. You and I have turned away, of, away from God. Here's the only difference. I need you to catch this. Your sin may differ in degree, frequency, extent, or consequence, but God condemns us all. So we sin differently, but all of us sin. So how does God judge me and you? God's judgment of me is impartial. He sees the whole truth. And can I just say this? One of the craziest mantras of our generation, we'll say, we'll say things like this. Well, only God can judge me. You should be scared to death. I'll take any of your judgment over me over God's. I'll take it. Even the one of you that hates me the most, I'll take your judgment. Because God knows what goes on inside of here and here. And it's wicked. The second thing, let's read Romans chapter 2, verse 3. He says, do you really think, and he's talking to you, do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you'll escape God's judgment? Do you think you'll escape it? That you'll get reprieve? Here's the second thing I want you to see, that God's judgment of me 
is inescapable. I don't enjoy, I don't delight in telling you this because it's true for me. Y'all, we all have an appointment. I've got one, you've got one. We will all stand before God, our maker, hey, and give an account of how we conducted our lives. It's going to happen. Sometimes in our society, American society, justice is easy to escape. You can break the law and the offense never becomes known or you might cover it up. Or the law discovers you and you run to another jurisdiction to get out from the authority of the law. If you're arrested and charged, you might find some fault in the legal process and maneuver your way legally to freedom. And if all else fails, and you're actually sentenced and incarcerated, you still can't escape prison if you want to try. God's judgment, though, is inescapable. You cannot hide your offense. You cannot cover it up. He is sovereign, which means He rules over and overrules all. Ladies and gentlemen, there'll be no other jurisdiction for you to run to. It all belongs to Him. You will never get out from under the authority of God. God is the righteous judge and He is true. You will find no fault in His proceeding. We'll talk about that next week. When He announces judgment on you, you'll agree with it. You'll agree with it. Once God reveals His sentence, there is no escaping hell. You won't come out of it. You will not escape this encounter with your maker. How does God judge me? He judges you impartially and his judgment is inescapable. The third thing here, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Number three, write this down. God's judgment of me is intolerant. Intolerant. See, here's what we think. We think, we tend to expect that God will punish us right behind our sin. We'll sin and then there will be punishment. That's not how God does things. He actually gives a space for repentance. And because He gives this space for repentance, we tend to think, oh, God must be tolerating my sin. He's okay with me living life this way because He hasn't punished me yet. I've not been afflicted by anything. If that were true, you would have never seen today. If God was punishing you right on the backs of your sin, none of us would be here. None. We should all be asking this question, these kinds of questions according to this verse. Why didn't God judge me yesterday when I said that sharp word of criticism? Why didn't I immediately stand before His throne and He sentenced me? Why didn't he shrivel my hand 
when I cheated on my income tax? Why didn't he strike me dumb when I was gossiping? Those are the questions. Well, that's what we should be asking. He's a righteous God. He's told us he has wrath against sin. Why don't we experience it immediately when we sin? In Greek, the, the word here, restraint, is just it's probably my favorite word in this whole verse. It denotes an armistice, a temporary ceasefire, a temporary truce. What's the thing about a truce? Once the truce ends, what's it at? You're back at war and fighting. The restraint that God shows here is not permanent peace with you. He has made a truce for you. Do not mistake God's generosity, His forbearance, literally His putting up with your sin as approval of God's will to bless sinners in their sin. That's not what He's doing. God in His good pleasure has permitted a temporary truce. God does not punish you immediately after your sin. He holds back His judgment. But I need you to see this, church. Him holding back His judgment is temporary. We're going to get to its revelation next week in verse 5 if we make it. What is God doing in the meanwhile? What is God doing with this temporary truce? This is at least some comfort in this message. By His kindness and His goodness and His generosity, He wants to lead you. He wants to take you up by the shoulder and drag you to repentance. He wants to bring you to a place that you'll repent of your sin. Let's meditate on that just for a few moments. I need you to think about this. Jonathan Edwards put this in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He says the earth, the, 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 where your feet, what your feet is on, the earth does not willingly bear you up for you're a burden to it. The sun does not willingly shine on you to give you light to serve your sin. The air does not willingly serve for your breath to maintain life in your lungs. Listen to this. The whole world would vomit you out were it not for the sovereign hand of God. You understand that this is, and his point from this, I, I just got to say this, it's from Romans chapter 8, it says the whole creation groans, longing for redemption. You know why creation groans? We sinned and, and God cursed the ground because of us. The earth would throw us out if it would. And God goes, not yet. Not yet. For many of you, God has prospered your endeavors, some beyond your expectation. You came from a low position. You've accumulated comforts and even luxuries. You've enjoyed good health, a sharp mind, a strong disposition. You have a happy family. You're envied. Death and sickness just seem to knock at everyone else's door but yours. Some of you have been cradled in a Christian home. You have often and earnestly been prayed for, taught the gospel from your youth with the holiest example of parents and people, with the best possible checks 
all around you to prevent you from running into sin. And yet, what have we done? To sin we've ran. You live in a place in America where the gospel is preached. You live in a time when you don't have to work for years to earn enough money to buy a Bible. Multiple copies of the Word of God lies right in front of you on the back of your pew at this very moment. Do you realize what, what privileged people you are? It's right there to your access. The gospel of God and repentance and the shed blood of Jesus sits right in front of you. Your sins have been terribly offensive to God day after day. His spirit is grieved and vexed with every idle word and every immoral thought. It is a wonder of wonders that a God so sensitive to sin and at the same time a God so able to avenge himself day after day shows you kindness. He loves you. When he should strike you out of existence, he spares you another year to run from him. He spares you another seven years to lust. He may spare you another ten years for greed. He may spare you another 20 years of coming to church, hearing the gospel, and rejecting his son's death on the cross for your sins. And you'll keep saying, there'll be another day, and I'll be a Christian, and you have deceived yourself. One day, there will be no more days. It's coming. How does God judge me and you? He judges us impartially. We can't escape it. And I need you to know, He is intolerant. It's just a temporary truce. So what? Is there any hope? Yeah, it's actually pretty explicit in this text. God postpones our punishment so His kindness will lead you to repent. Write this down. And I'm going to put it in words like right where you say it. I should repent now. I should repent now. Now, I know repentance is not really a word we use every day. Repentance means a change of mind. Specifically, a change of mind about sin. Remember, we just sat there in the context. We can point out everybody else's sin, right? Look at them. God's going to judge them. Repentance is saying, oh, look at me. <laughs> I'm a sinner. God's going to judge me. It refers to the change that comes over a person when he or she, she sees sin as no longer as attractive, but as damnable. I deserve God's judgment. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve hell. That's when the light bulb goes off. That's repentance. That's the change of mind. And when you see that, you want to turn from it. It means you abandoning that former way of life. And repentance is not simply a negative. If all we're saying with repentance is just do better and don't sin, 
Your old sin, right? It's not perfect repentance. Paul is clear that makes us right with God. It is faith in Jesus Christ. It means turning from sin, recognizing sin is damnable and I am a sinner and I'm turning to find new life and forgiveness in God's Son, Jesus Christ who died for my sins and rose to get, forgive me of my sin and give me eternal life. And so we commit our lives to Jesus. We trust Him and entrust ourselves to Him. He is the only safe haven from God's judgment because He appeased the wrath of God on the cross. So the question is this, will you repent and trust Christ? The amazing thing is, Think about this. While we cannot escape God's judgment by avoiding or resisting it, we can escape it by submitting to the verdict. I'm guilty. That's what he wants. In this life, will you sit there before God in view of the cross and say, I'm guilty and Jesus died for my sins. That's what repentance is. That's why he's being kind to you. He's given you another day. Will you look at Jesus and say, I'm guilty? And can I remind you, church, one day you won't have the opportunity to say, I'm guilty before the cross. Jesus will be seated on his throne post-judgment, and you'll still say, I'm guilty. You will come to that revelation. How does God judge me and you? Why are you here today? Why are you here? You should look at yourself going, I shouldn't even be here. Much less enjoy the comforts and luxuries in the family or whatever that you consider good in your life. A generous gift from God. If you go, I enjoy certain things. They've been gifts from God. Why am I even allowed to live and to experience whatever little goodness I've touched? And here's my conclusion. It takes your lifetime for God's temper to flare. Did you catch that? Your lifetime for his temper to flare up. Now here's the only issue with that. Any of you know how long you'll live? But he has given you your lifetime for his temper to simmer up. And then please catch this. And it will take an eternity for his temper to subside. Did you get me? You have your lifetime to come to repentance. And I cannot guarantee you another day. And once you die or God returns and judges the living and the dead, it's eternity for his righteous anger to subside. God has lengthened your life saying, I'll spare you. Maybe you'll repent. I'll give you more light. I'll increase your comforts. I'll give you another sermon. Maybe you'll repent. Do not turn today into an occasion for hardening your heart against God. Come to Him and just, I'm guilty. And I trust my life to Jesus, His Son. If God wakes you up tomorrow, first of all, thank Him. Thank Him. Just... I made it through the night. If he wakes you up tomorrow and you do not find yourself in hell, will you do me a favor? 
bask in the sunlight and hear the sun say, I shine on you today so you'll repent. When your bed embraces you at night, it whispers, I give you another night's rest so you may repent. When you come to your table and you see the food, that food says, I support your body, but you may have the strength to repent. When you open your Bible and the passages say, I speak to you today so that you will repent. Do not despair of God's kindness. Do not despise of it. You'll have to give an account to all of those things who have testified and witnessed against you that God has been kind to you. Do not life and death, heaven and hell call you to repentance? They all do. You have in God's goodness space for repentance, so repent. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.